I'm going to read from Jane Fonda's biography, My Life So Far. I saw her on Good Morning America, and she talked about this book, and I bought it. It was just an amazing biography, I thought. The chapter that I'm going to read is called On Golden Pond. <clears throat> so, okay, it's new for me. <coughs> I don't like you, said Catherine Hepburn, pointing her finger straight at my face, her anger making the famous voice and classic head, which quivered at the best of times, shake with tenastic tremors. I had never met the legendary actor before, and it was a terrible moment, coming within minutes of my arrival with Bruce at her 49th Street townhouse. Terrible, not only because someone only a notch below God was damning me, but also because in less than two weeks she was supposed to travel to New Hampshire to begin rehearsing on Golden Pond with my father and me. Catherine Hepburn was critical to the financing of the film. No American studio thought anyone would want to see a movie about two old people and a kid. On top of that, my father was suffering from heart disease that was serious enough to keep us from getting insurance coverage for the film. Everything depended on all of us working for far less than our usual salaries. And if we lost Catherine Hepburn, the whole project would be doomed. It was difficult for me to know exactly what was at the root of her anger with me. She was famously liberal, so I know it had nothing to do with my politics. It seemed, I ha- it seemed to have something to do with my not having been present at her first encounter with my father, my having chosen instead to make the bus trip with Dolly Parton. Despite the decades in the same, their decades in the same profession, knowing many of the same people, Hepburn and Fonda had never met until now, and though my company was producing the film, it had never dawned on me that my presence at this coming together of two Hollywood icons was necessary. For better or worse, the need for homage had never reared its head in my 25 years in the business. It never dawned on me that Captain Hepburn would perceive my absence at the meeting as lack of respect. There was another factor at play. The 73-year-old Miss Hepburn had dislocated her rotator cuff and torn a tendon in her shoulder while playing tennis. Our visit was in order to ascertain whether or not she would be able to begin filming on schedule. Shortly on the heels of, I don't like you, came, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to do this film, Jane. Announced with the certainty of a New England Brahmin. I don't think my shoulder will get well fast enough to do it, and there are those scenes where I'd have to lug wood and carry the canoe into the water, so you'd just better go ahead and get Geraldine Page or someone to take over. She reminded me of myself with Alan Pakuka before starting Clute. But then suddenly she was on to the film credits, whose name would go above whose. I was relieved because it meant she was still seeing herself in the movie, but I couldn't fathom why she would see the credits as a problem. I just assumed she and my father would get top billing and that my name as a supporting actress would run beneath theirs. Then it hit me. She suspected that I might want billing above hers. Oh, my God. It never would have occurred to me to feel competitive with Katherine Hepburn or to expect any special treatment because of my producing role. Film credits and such things that serve as outward proof of one's standing had never been especially important to me. You do a good job and people take notice is the way I see it. But maybe this competitiveness is what separates the legends from the mere movie stars. I was more like my father, comfortable in an egalitarian context, and I've always tended to forget that everyone is not like this. I realized that this whole meeting for her was a testing of the waters to determine whether I knew my place, and if not, to put me in it. Once I realized this, I could see how vulnerable she felt. She was a legend, yes, but I was the younger actress who, because of youth, was currently more of a box office draw, and I was only one Oscar behind her. 
This was on her mind, as will become clear. She was used to being in charge, but my company was producing the film as a vehicle for my father, and I was in the driver's seat. Moreover, I had not conformed to her need for approbation. Now, with her injury, she probably thought I might want to replace her. I quickly realized that her opening salvo had been in her instinctive way to put me on the defensive. I don't like you. And by announcing she wasn't going to do the film, she was assuming the offensive, getting out before I replaced her, scoping out where she stood in the delicate balance of power and protocol. From the moment I sensed what was really going on, it was easy to open my heart to her. When she began offering ideas about how the scene with the canoe could be rigged to ease the burden on her shoulder, I knew that she had never really meant to leave the project. She was just testing us. No sooner was the issue of her being in the movie put to rest than she issued another challenge. Are you going to do the backflip yourself, Jane? She looked at me, and I think I saw a twinkle in her eyes. In the film, the backflip plays an important role in my character's relationship with her father. She hadn't been able to do it as a youngster because, according to him, she was too fat. But this summer, as a grown and newly married woman, she decides to prove to him that she is now able. But holy sh... I had no intention of doing the dive myself. A stunt double was already lined up to do it for me. For one thing, I have a phobia about going over backwards, and for another, I hate cold water. But the moment the question left Miss Hepburn's mouth, the image of her doing that perfect dive in the Philadelphia story came into my mind, and I knew what my answer would have to be. Of course I'm going to do the dive myself, Miss Hepburn, but I'll have to learn how because I've never done one. I'd be damned before I'd let on that I was scared. Wanting to check out the housing situation before Miss Hepburn got there, I went to Squam, Squam Lake, a private, a wild, pristine body of water, big and irregularly shaped, with small islands scattered about that made it impossible to see from one into the other. Bruce and his wife were already settled into a pleasant camp on the far side of the lake and had lined up a number of summer rentals for me to look at. Over the course of the three months we would be there, Vanessa, Troy, Tom, and our German shepherd, Geronimo, would be living with me, and plans had been made for CED's entire steering committee, all ten of them, to come up for some strategy lessons. I needed a large house. Shirley had already picked out a place for herself and dad. It was a guest house close to a spacious two-story, eight-bedroom brick main house that sat on a hill with a wide lawn that swooped down to the lake. The main house was perfect for my considerable needs, and besides, it was right next to dad. There was another camp to the north, much smaller but cozy, with the beautiful bay window overlooking the water and a number of small outlying rustic cabins. Perfect, I thought, for Miss Hepburn and the ever-attentive Phyllis. At the appointed time, Bruce and I drove to the parking lot of the restaurant where we had arranged a rendezvous with them. Within minutes, their station wagon pulled up, and Miss Hepburn got out and came over to me. Well, have you picked your house yet, Jane? In that instant, I knew that I had to throw out my assumptions about who would take which house. I've seen a number of houses, Miss Hepburn, but you make up your choice first, and I'll take what's left. Now you're talking, she said with a big grin, knowing I'd learned my lesson and wasn't about to make the same mistake again. Phew. It had been a close call. Miss Hepburn and Phyllis in a cozy little cabin. What could I have been thinking? She chose the eight-bedroom mansion. Let me provide a little backstory. For years, I had wanted to do a movie in which all of the fondest, Henry, Peter, and I would act together. 
when Bruce saw the play on Golden Pond in New York, he wanted to buy it right away as time was of the essence. Dad had been increasingly in and out of hospitals with heart disease and a variety of complications that resulted from it, and I knew there wasn't a lot of time left for us together. Even though there was no role for Peter and mine was very much a supporting role, I believed that in the role of Norman Thayer, Dad would win the Oscar that had eluded him for so long. I wanted to make that happen for him. <clears throat> The film tells of an elderly couple who have summered for decades on a lake in Maine called Golden Pond. Norman, a moody curmudgeon played by my father, is about to turn 80, and his daughter Chelsea, en route to Europe with her fiancé, has planned to stop by the lake for his birthday party. Along with them is the fiancé's 13-year-old son, Billy, whom they hope to leave with Chelsea's parents for a month while they travel. Chelsea, a real estate agent who lives in California, has had a troubled, distant relationship with her father all her life and has made a point of not visiting her parents because of it, something that has hurt her father, though she doesn't even realize he cares. Young Billy is angry, feeling as though he's been dumped someplace boring with a couple of old poops. But in the course of the summer, Norman and Billy bond, as Norman has never with his own daughter. He teaches Billy to fish and execute a fine backflip the dive Chelsea was never able to accomplish, and Billy teaches Norman such expressions as cruising chicks, suck face, and sand frantastic. We can, <clears throat> we can feel Norman's heart soften because of this relationship with Billy, and when Chelsea returns from Europe to fetch the boy, she sees this and gets jealous. With her mother's encouragement, Chelsea is finally able to muster the courage to confront her father, telling him she wants them to be friends, and he is able to show his love for her for the first time. The main fabric of the story is the touching 50-year-long relationship between Norman and his wife Ethel, played by Hepburn. It is deeply touching when he loses his way in the woods while trying to pick strawberries and comes running home to her. So is the scene when he suffers acute angina and she tells him how scared she is of losing him. The two of them bring a rare poignancy to these scenes, and I for one cannot watch them without sobbing uncontrollably. <coughs> Time was of the essence. Because of my father's failing health, we all knew it was this summer or never. On Golden Pond is a summer story, and we had to get it done by early fall when the deciduous hardwood trees, so characteristic of that part of New England, would begin to turn their fall colors. So we were working against time, the season changing, Miss Hepburn's injured rotator cuff, and my father's health. Also, an actor strike was looming against the Motion Picture Association of America, and it threatened to shut down all productions. We hoped that if we had actually started shooting before the strike began, they wouldn't ask us to stop. We were wrong. The actors struck, and we got the call to shut down. Bruce spent three desperate days arguing that because we were with a ITC, a British independent company, not an MPAA studio, we didn't fall under their jurisdiction. He was successful in getting a waiver that allowed us to continue. Had that not occurred, on Golden Pond would never have been made. <coughs> me. Once rehearsals had begun, Miss Hepburn would invite me over to her house for tea. We'd sit in the comfortable white wicker chairs that were scattered about her glassed-in porch, and she would tell me how I should play my role. I'm serious, and so was she. Miss Hepburn would have me read her part, and she'd read mine and give me line readings. Though I was stunned by this, I never let on that I found it, well, strange. I did not want to offend her. I never tired of looking at her. Though in her mid-70s, she was still magnificent. It was part attitude and part bone structure. I realized that if the architecture of a face is upward-reaching, those cheekbones, and properly proportioned as hers was, it mattered not if the skin that was draped over the scaffolding was wrinkled and blotched. The essential beauty held. 
aging takes more of a toll on less structured faces. Though she told me once that she thought the two of us were very much alike, both strong, independent, liberal-minded women, she also let me know what she saw as our differences. For one thing, she thought I should be more involved on a day-to-day basis with the film production, which, of course, is how she was in her heyday, involved in all the details from casting to lighting. She has been quoted as saying, acting was all I ever wanted to do. But I wasn't like that. I loved acting, especially once I began producing my own pictures. But it was one important part of my life among others. I had my children, my ongoing political work with the CED, the new workout business to help fund it all, and a dog. Miss Hepburn wasn't big on pets either. But I know Miss Hepburn looked scant at all of this. She simply didn't understand the concept of having a working partner like Bruce, of having a business unrelated to my profession, and of putting as much or more time into political work as I did into my career. Ms. Hepburn was livid that CED steering committee were there, <clears throat> were all there living at our camp, the smaller one, which I thought appropriate for Ms. Hepburn and Phyllis, in cabins and tents. She thought it was unpardonable for me not to be 100% concentrated on the film. We had to wait for a day when we were utterly certain Ms. Hepburn would not be coming to the set before we would invite the CED organizers to pay a visit and watch the shooting. Of course, the idea of an actor having children was an anathema, anathema, anathema to her. She told me that she had never wanted children because she thought she was too selfish. If I had a child, she said, and the child got sick and was crying just as I had to leave for the theater where hundreds of people were waiting for me to perform and I had to make a choice, the play or the child, well, I'd smother the child to death and go on with the show. You just can't have both, she said with frightening certainty, a career and children. I don't think she was right, at least not for me. Maybe for her she was. To have had the career she wanted perhaps required 100% attention. I do know that I felt terrible after those conversations. They played to my tendency to feel that I should be handling my life differently. More like, I don't know. There was always a roster of women whose lives seemed more sensible than mine, just as there was always a list of actresses who could do my part better than I. I stayed awake many nights fretting about this, feeling sure that she was right and that my kids would be totally screwed up because of me. But guess what? They aren't. In fact, my kids have grown up to be amazing, talented, well-balanced, lovable people. Not that I can take credit for it all, but still. Anyway, I am what I am. On, a, <clears throat> on more than one occasion during those tea-time tea conversations, Ms. Hepburn talked of her relationship with actresses Constance Collier and Ethel Barrymore, both elders with whom she seemed to have assigned herself the role of acolyte. She described how when Barrymore was hospitalized toward the end of her life, Hepburn would visit her regularly. She told me about this so often that I began to wonder if she was hoping for a younger actress who would befriend her and whether perhaps the actress she had in mind was me. I was never sure but she was more comfortable with people who had no other attachments, not even pets. She talked a lot about the importance of her parents in her life, always speaking of them as the most wonderful, fascinating parents anyone could have and crediting them and <laughs> with making her what she was. Apparently, her habit of swimming every morning when she was at her country house in Connecticut, even in the winter, had been developed at an early age. She told me that her father had insisted all his children take baths in a tub filled with ice water every morning before school. When I suggested that this might be considered child abuse, she said, oh no, that is what builds character and that is why I have such a strong constitution and never get sick. I wasn't convinced but kept my mouth shut. 
She told me that every morning in the city she would get up at 5 a.m., have breakfast in bed, and write about her life experiences. One chapter, she said, was called Failure and described her monumental failure in a Broadway play called The Lake. One reviewer said, Go see Catherine Hepburn run the gamut of emotions from A to B. She said, (laughs) I'm writing about how you learn more from failure than you ever do from success. On that one, I agree with her. Having learned my lesson, I was not about to miss a second historic event, so I was present on the first day of shooting, even though I was not in the scene. Miss Hepburn was all made up and waiting for my father on the front steps of the house in which we were filming. She had a twinkle in her eye, and we could tell she was hiding something behind her back. As soon as Dad arrived, she walked up to me and she said, Here, Hank, this was Spence's favorite hat. I want you to have it for the film. Dad was clearly moved by this gesture from his leading lady, as were we all. In the course of the film, he wore three different hats, and Spencer Tracy's was one of them. When the film ended, he made a painting of the three hats, so real that you could feel their texture. He had lithograph copies made and presented one to every member of the cast and crew. My first day of filming was the scene of my arrival at my parents' summer home with my fiancé and his son. Miss Hepburn had not seen me in costume and makeup. She took one look at my high-heeled shoes and disappeared, returning a few minutes later in a pair of her old platform shoes from the 30s, which increased her height by at least two inches. That's when I remembered that height was important to her. I'd read that she brought it up in her first encounter with Spencer Tracy, telling him, you're not as tall as I expected. This prompted producer Joseph Mankiewicz's famous comment, don't worry, Kate, he'll soon cut you down to size. I suppose that for her, height established dominance. She'd be damned if I'd let her tower over her. That same day, between takes, I was standing in front of the mirror that hung near the front door where Norman's hats were hung when Miss Hepburn surprised me by coming up behind me. She reached around and took a chunk of my cheek between her fingers. What does this mean to you? She asked, pulling on my cheek. What do you mean? Your image. What do you want your image to be? She gave my cheek another little tug. This is your package. We all have our package, which presents us to the world. What do you want your package to say about you? I have no idea, I answered. But I thought a lot about this for days afterwards and still do today. That's the thing about Miss Hepburn. She got under my skin and stirred things up. I think I now know why she asked me the question. She thought I needed to be more self-conscious about my image. That's what she felt movie stars needed to do. God knows she did. She had a persona, a style particular to her that will live on in the minds of her public, and she never wavered from it. I, on the other hand, was a hodgepodge, still searching for who I was, lacking self-consciousness about my persona, and this bothered her. She didn't want me to be this way. It was one more thing about me that she didn't approve of. We tend to think of the term self-consciousness as meaning something bad, as being awkward or uncomfortable with oneself. But the way I'm using it means something rather different, a consciousness of self, the impact our presence has on other people. The only other person I have known as self-conscious is Ted Turner, and as with Hepburn, it's part of his charm. Everything about our summer on Squam Lake was magical. Even nature wanted to get in on the act. Take the loon, for instance. The loon is a wondrous bird about the size of a small goose with dramatic black and white markings and a haunting cry that resembles the trill of distant laughter. It dives underwater to catch fish and nests in the lake-rich areas of the northern regions. In the winter, it migrates to warmer climes. Loons mate for life. The males and females share in the rearing of their children, and for all of us, they become emblematic of the film's couple, Ethel and Norman Thayer. Loons are shy, wary of humans. One rarely gets the opportunity to watch them up close, but one day, 
some crew members were eating lunch down by the lake's edge, and one of them suddenly came running, calling us to come down. A family of loons, mama, papa, and several babies were just a few feet offshore and seemed to want to stay there. The camera operator grabbed the camera and filmed them, and they hung out there for several days as though knowing that this film would be wonderful and wanting to be part of it. They are the first image you see in the film. From the moment I arrived in New Hampshire, I began taking backflip lessons from the University of Maine swimming coach who summons <clears throat> who summered near Squam Lake. I started with a belt around my waist, hooked up to a rope that assisted me in the flip with a mattress to cushion the fall. After a week or so, I graduated to the coach's diving board, and Troy would sit poolside and watch his mother's pathetic attempts to get herself all the way around, which generally ended with me landing on my back. I was terrified, always on the verge of tossing the towel. After a month of this, I moved to the float, the one in the movie in front of the house. It was the beginning of July, and I had less than a month to get it right. Every day when I wasn't needed on the set, I would be out there diving backwards over and over again, my body slapping against the water as I failed to make it around. Then one day, about three weeks into this ordeal on the lake, I finally got it right. Nothing to write home about, but I had managed to flip far enough over to have time to straighten my legs and enter the water head first. I wasn't sure I'd ever be able to do it again, but at least I'd done it once. As I crawled, battered and bruised, onto the shore, out of the nearby bushes appeared Miss Hepburn. She must have been hiding there watching me practice. She walked over to where I was standing and said in her shaky, nasal, God is a New Englander voice, Don't you feel good? <laughs> <clears throat> Terrific, I answered, and it was true. You've taught me to respect you, Jane. you faced your fear. Everyone should know that feeling of overcoming fear and mastering something. People who aren't taught that become soggy. Thank you, Lord. I'd been redeemed. God knows the last thing in the world I wanted to be was soggy, certainly not in the eyes of Miss Hepburn, a living testament to non-sogginess. It was odd. In the film, the backflip was to prove myself to my father. In real life, I had proved myself to Miss Hepburn. Dad probably couldn't have cared less if I'd done the dive myself or used a stunt double. We finally shot the diving scene in the third week of July. I managed a fairly good dive and was relieved to have it out of the way. Wrong, 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 as Miss Hepburn would say. A few days later, we learned that the footage of the scene had somehow been damaged in the lab and I would have to do it all over again. As though that weren't bad enough, when we finally got around to reshooting, it was mid-September and the water was numbingly cold. I will never forget having to walk out on the diving board all wet and shivering while the crew sat in the camera boat with <clears throat> in their down parkas. I was out of practice and too cold to execute the dive as well as I had the first time. When I came to the serpents and said, I did it. It was lousy, but at least I did it. Those were my own words, spontaneous and totally true. <clears throat> There's a scene where Dad and Miss Hepburn are playing Parcheesi, and I'm sitting on the couch reading a magazine. Dad makes a remark about my not wanting to play because I'm afraid to lose. I respond, why do you like playing games? You seem to like beating people. I wonder why. After we shot the master and the crew had finished lighting for my close-up, I got into place and realized that there were so many lights on me that I couldn't see Dad's eyes, which would hinder my playing of this brief hostile exchange. It was easy to fix. I just asked the cameraman to throw a little light into his face. That done, it was time for Dad's close-up. And just before we were set to go, I asked, Is it okay, Dad? Can you see my eyes? I don't need to see your eyes, he answered dismissively. I'm not that kind of actor. Whoa. His words pierced me to my core. It felt like such a put-down. Forget that I had made this project happen for him. Forget my two Academy Awards, that I was the mother of two children. Forget all that. I was suddenly reduced to a quivering, insecure, fat girl in the same way my character is. 
As Chelsea says to her mother in another scene, I act like a big person everywhere else. In California, I'm in charge of things. Yeah, I get back here with him, and I'm just a fat little girl again. I could really relate to that. And yet, and this is what makes life so interesting for actors. Hell, maybe it is why some of us become actors. While one part of me was in emotional agony because of his comment, the other half of me was saying, oh my God, this is just so great. This is exactly the way I'm supposed to feel. This is just perfect for the character. When the scene was over and everyone had prepared to go home for the day, I remained on the couch, unable to move, but sure that no one was aware how Dad's words had hurt me. To my surprise, Miss Hepburn came over and sat down next to me. She put her arms around me and she whispered in my ear, I know just how you feel, Jane. Spence used to do things like that to me all the time. He'd tell me to go home after I'd done my close-up, that he didn't need me to be around. He could do his own lines just as well as the script girl. Please don't feel badly. Your dad has no idea that his words hurt you. He didn't mean it. He's just like Spence. I was deeply grateful for her understanding and compassion. It showed me it hadn't all been my imagination. I had a witness. I wasn't alone. Speaking about her experience on the movie, Miss Hepburn told her friend and biographer, A. Scott Berg, it was strange. There was certainly a whole layer of drama going on in the scenes between her, me, and Hank, and I think she came by to watch every scene he and I had together. There was a feeling of longing about her. She was right about the longing. I longed for him to love me and see me as an able grown-up, and for me to do so too. On Golden Pond is an archetypal story of love and loyalty, but it's also about the difficulty of resolving generational differences when a parent is withholding and a child is angry because of it. Of all the films I've made, none seems to have resonated so profoundly with so many people as this one. I realize the universality universality of the dilemma because people, men and women, to this day go out of their way to tell me how their relationships with their fathers resemble Chelsea and Norman's. In many cases, they tell me that it was taking their fathers to see the movie that enabled the breakthrough to occur. Isn't one of the difficulties knowing who should make the first move? The child is angry because the parent hasn't been what he or she should have been. The child waits for the deficit parent to admit he or she was terrible and to ask forgiveness. But it's harder to change when you're older. You know you've made mistakes, but you don't understand this new generation and you're stuck in your ways unless you keep working on yourself to not get stuck. Playing Chelsea in on Golden Pond and paying attention to the advice her mother gives her allowed me to see that it has to be the child who makes the move toward forgiveness and that if it is done from a loving place, the parent will almost always be there to receive. One important caveat that Ethel gives Chelsea, sometimes you have to look very hard at a person and remember he's doing the best he can. Everyone on the set was sensitive to the fact that my father and I had a complex relationship and that this film in many ways mirrored real life, but with the resolution at the end. I hope that somehow the resolution between father and daughter in the film would lap over to dad and me. He always said that acting gave him a mask that allowed him to reveal emotions he did not feel safe revealing in real life. Maybe showing his emotion about his daughter in the film would release the real ones. There's a scene with the mother when Chelsea comes back from Europe to pick up Billy. She is hurt that her father has developed such a close relationship with the boy, and her mother is trying to get her to realize that underneath the gruff exterior, her father loves her and that she just needs to talk to him and pay close attention. I'm afraid of him, says Chelsea. Well, he's afraid of you, too. The two of you should get along just fine. I don't even know him, Chelsea says. Chelsea, the mother, admonishes Norman is 80 years old. He has heart palpitations and trouble remembering things. Just exactly when do you expect this relationship to begin? 
<clears throat> the scene that follows is my key scene in the movie, the one where I confront my father. I wade into the water by the dock as Norman and Billy pull up from their fishing trip. Norman, I want to talk to you. Oh, yeah? What about? He says dismissively. I think maybe you and I should have the kind of relationship we're supposed to have. What kind of relationship is that? Norman snaps. You know, like father and daughter. Worried about the will, are you? Well, I'm leaving everything to you except what I'm taking with me. Chelsea begins to choke up. She fears her attempt at contact will end like just like all the others. I don't want anything. It's, it's just, it seems, it seems you and I have been mad at each other for so long. I didn't think we were mad. I just didn't think we liked each other. Chelsea is stunned by this cruelty but persists. I want to be your friend. And she places her hand on his arm. From, from the first, every time I read the script, I would come to that scene and tears would pour down my cheeks. In rehearsals, I was so emotional that it was hard to speak the lines. Finally, the day of reckoning came. I woke up and ran to the bathroom to vomit, more scared than I'd ever been before seen, and knowing it was because I had to say intimate words to my father that I'd never be able to say in real life. We blocked the scene for the camera and lighting crew. He in the boat, me waist deep in the, daughter, in the water. Even then, I was nearly overcome with emotion. We began with the wide shot that included the two of us, the boat and the pier. Though I knew a scene like this was ultimately going to play in close-up, I was unable to hold back my emotions. Next, we shot over my shoulder onto Dad, and, I <clears throat> and still I gave it my all, partly because I couldn't help myself and partly because I wanted him to be emotional too. As I have written in an earlier chapter, I waited until his last shot to touch his arm as I tell him I want to be his friend. I wanted to take him by surprise. It worked. Tears welled in his eyes, and he ducked his head, not wanting it to show. But it did. I was so happy. Then the camera swung around for my close-up. We did a rehearsal for the camera, and oh no, the actor's ultimate nightmare. I was bone dry, spent, unable to call up any emotions. No one knew it, of course, because this was just a rehearsal, but I panicked. What to do? It wasn't that I had to be overly emotional on the scene, but I needed to feel emotional and then stifle it. I tried to relax as Strasbourg would have wanted. I tried all the sense memories I had, sang my old songs that always made me cry, everything, but nothing seemed to work. As I was pacing around on shore, waiting for the camera to be ready, dreading that the camera would be ready, up came Miss Hepburn. She wasn't even supposed to be on the set that day, but there she was. She looked at me. How are you, she asked, sensing something. I'm in trouble. I've gone dry. Please don't tell Dad. I answered weakly. And then I was called to the set. The time of reckoning had come. Hoping that some last-minute miracle would unleash my heart, I said to Mark, I'm going to turn my back to the camera while I prepare, and when I turn around, it means I'm ready for you to roll. He understood. I turned away to prepare, though I had no idea what to do, and as I was staring at the shore, trying to relax and bring myself into the scene, there was Hepburn, crouching in the bushes, just within my line of vision. Nobody could see her but me. She fixed me intensely with her eyes, and slowly she raised her clenched fists and shook them as if to say, Do it. Go ahead. You can do this. She was willing me into the scene. Catherine Hepburn to Jane Fonda, mother to daughter, older actress who'd been there and knew about drying up to younger actress. It was all those layers of things and more. Do it. Do it. You can. I know. With her energy, she literally gave me the scene. She gave it to me with her fists, her eyes, her generosity, and I will never, ever forget it. That night, I asked Dad and Shirley if I could come over to dinner. The scene had been so utterly personally for me, so intimate in a way that he and I have never been. I was raw, and I felt so close to him that I needed to acknowledge it and see if he felt the same. I wanted to tell him how terrifying it had been to dry up like that, <clears throat> like I did, and to ask if this ever happened to him. At least, you know, share some actor's talk. 
but mostly I wanted to know if he changed in any way as a result of the intimacy. I told him about drying up and asked if such a thing had ever happened to him. Nope. Couldn't believe it. Never? Not once in your whole career? Nope. My heart sank. That was it. Just nope. Why did these things happen to me and not to him? Why was I, what was I doing wrong? Moreover, it was all too clear that he was no more open or forthcoming now than he'd been before the scene. I was so sad. I felt like a dope for getting all soft and fuzzy over what to him was obviously just a scene. Catherine Hepburn told Scott Berg, Hank Fonda was the hardest nut I ever tried to crack, but I didn't know any more about him after we had made that picture than I did at the beginning. Cold, cold, cold. Yep. On the set, <clears throat> on the set one day, Ms. Hepburn told our unit publicist that she thought it was the duty of a star to be fascinating. There is no denying that, that the lady worked hard to do her duty and as a result was one of the two most fascinating people I have ever known, the other being Ted Turner. But despite this and despite my father's coldness in the, generic, in the ge genetic scheme of things, I am glad I am my father's daughter. I never loved him more than when I watched him day after day as he sat on the set between takes in his canvas chair with his name printed on the back panel, waiting to be called before the cameras. Quiet, demanding little, not looking to fascinate. He was what he was. <clears throat> on Golden Pond was the largest grossing film of 1981. The studios were wrong. People did want to see this movie about old folks because it spoke of universal interests, issues with pathos and humor. Never has a movie of mine had such a profound personal impact on people. Never have people crossed the street just to hug me and tell me that seeing it and then bringing their fathers to see it had altered their relationships forever. This has moved me and gladdened me greatly over the years. The film received 10 Academy Award nominations, among them Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Screenplay. Dad was too ill to attend the ceremony, and given his lifelong antipathy for awards and competition. I'm not sure he would have gone even if he had been well enough, but he intended to watch the proceedings for Shirley from his bed. Miss Hepburn did not attend either. The first one of us to win for best writing screenplay based on material from another medium was Ernest Thompson, who actually leapt with joy as he crossed the stage. I did not win Best Supporting Actress, losing to the remarkable Maureen Stapleton playing the radical Emma Goldman in Reds. Eight-year-old Troy was sitting next to me as the names of the nominees for Best Actress were being read. I saw him drop his head and squeeze his eyes tight. When Katherine Hepburn's name was announced as the winner for an unprecedented fourth time, Troy tugged excitedly on my arm and whispered, Mom, I prayed she'd win, and my prayer was answered. Then Sissy Spacey came out to present the award for Best Actor. For all his great performances, Dad had been nominated only once before, and that was for Tom Joad in The Grapes of Wrath. This time he had stiff competition. Warren Beatty, Burt Lancaster, Dudley Moore, and Paul Newman. There was nothing I wanted more in life than for him to finally win. This was my fervent prayer. When Sissy opened the envelope and, I and, and announced his name, the theater erupted in applause and cheering. I went up on stage to claim the Oscar on his behalf, as he had asked me to do in the event he won. It was the happiest moment of my life. Tom, Troy, Vanessa, and I left the ceremony immediately, along with Amy, the daughter of Susan and the daughter Susan and Dad had adopted at birth, and my niece Bridget Fonda to carry the statue to him. <clears throat> he was sitting in his wheelchair next to the bed when we arrived. Shirley was right next to him as always. Watching his face closely, I could see he was pleased. When I asked him how I felt. All he said was, I'm so happy for Kate. 
The next morning, I called Miss Hepburn to congratulate her, and her first words to me were, you'll never catch me now. It took a moment for me to understand what she was talking about, and then it hit me. Of course. If she hadn't won and I had, we'd be tied with three Oscars each. Now she had four, and I only had two. No way I'd catch up. I had to laugh. We were still operating on different wavelengths, but how could I not love her spunk? Dad died five months later. <laughs> that always gets me. That's the end of it. <laughs> How weird. You, you won't just know. I've got my own. Thank you. I have, to, I have to stay here. Can I go over there? You can go over there. I'm a loner. I can handle it. Oh, no, I'm fine. Um, I'm going to read from Ultra Marathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner by Dean Carnassus. Um, I don't know if any of you know who Dean Carnassus is, but he was in the news quite a lot this fall. He became the first person to ever run 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 consecutive days. So that's 26.2 miles a day, 50 days in a row with all the travel that goes along with going from state to state. Um, I'm a marathon runner, and I think that running 26.2 miles once a year is enough. Um, but I've read this book three times now, and any time I think that something is impossible, this reminds me that there are people like him that uh, make things, make the impossible possible every day. Um, I'm going to read you a chapter called King of Pain, and this is after Dean Carnassus has um, had some life crises. His sister that he loved very dearly died at age 18. Um, he's had some tro- troubles with his marriage and with his job, and he has turned to distance running and then ultra-distance running. An ultra-marathon is anything above and beyond a regular marathon of 26.2 miles, and he has finally qualified for the Western States 100, which is a 100-mile race in some pretty interesting conditions. And this is the first time that he attempts that race. So, uh, King of Pain, and he starts with a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. Sierra Nevada, 5.01 a.m., June 25, 1994. The 379 runners charged forward in a pack. The crowd roared. Flashbulbs ignited the cloud of dust we kicked up. I was desperately trying not to step on or be stepped on by anyone in the middle of the horde. The race was on. As we pounded up the mountain, the pack quietly thinned and quickly thinned. Stronger runners pulled ahead. Weaker ones fell behind. I remained somewhere in the middle. I'd been told that one of the tricks to finishing the western states, though I questioned whether there was any such thing as a trick to running 100 miles, was not to start out too hard. If you go out too fast, your muscles don't get the oxygen they need to run efficiently. This causes a buildup of lactic acid in the muscles that can later bring swelling and pain, even temporary paralysis. So I was taking a reserved and consistent approach to the several uh, miles at the beginning of the race. The climb up to Emigrant Pass was so steep that I was forced to move very slowly anyway. The high altitude and the thin air didn't help my pace much either. It felt weird running up slopes I'd snowboarded down so many times in the winter. At the summit of Emigrant Pass is the peak of Granite Chief. At 9,050 feet, it towers over the surrounding mountains. Getting up to Granite Chief as a skier requires three separate and lengthy chairlift rides. We ran under these lifts as we climbed. Three miles up the course, I looked back down the winding valley. There was a steady procession of runners moving up the trail like pack mules. The field had spread considerably, and most were now in single file. Above, the first golden rays of sunlight were lighting up Granite Chief. It was like the opening round of a title fight, my opponent being a 9,000-foot mountain. Soon I began experiencing the effects of high altitude. My head grew light, and the surrounding scenery started to look dreamlike and distant. My fingers swelled so that I had difficulty opening and closing my hands. In the official participant's guide, a binder issued to every runner, an entire chapter is devoted to medical and other risk factors. 
It noted the high altitude plus exertion can produce various degrees of mountain or altitude sickness. This can lead to severe lung and brain swelling and even death. It had been a little unsettling to see the use of the D word. I could accept and expect severe discomfort or even hospitalization, but brain swelling and death were a bit much. Sure, I wanted to finish the event, but the idea of dying in the process wasn't too appealing. Still, I kept pushing forward at a steady pace. Nearing the crest, I encountered something unexpected, snow. Large swatches of it crossed the trail and the entire summit was covered. The footing was unstable. It was difficult to put any power into my stride without slipping. There were big footholds along the snow path where other runners had stepped too heavily and broken through the flimsy crust. I slowed to prevent falling. Several runners were attempting to pass me, but it was easy to post hole in the untracked snow and slip, potentially a long way down. So, demoralizing as it was, I did the courteous thing and stepped aside to let them pass. No one thanked me for this show of sportsmanship. They just kept motoring along as though I wasn't even there. I reminded myself that at this stage of the race, anyone could run strong, but what toll would it take farther down the line? Long-distance running requires a certain discretion and reserve. It's easy to let your ego get the better of you early on and run beyond your means. It's a mistake that may haunt you as the miles and the hours add up. One of my biggest challenges in this early stage would have to be the discipline to go slow, even as other runners passed me, and I hated being passed. When I neared the summit, called the, es- called the escarpment, a short line of runners was waiting to get water at the first aid station. I pulled up to the back of the line and bent over, my hands on my knees, breathing deeply. I couldn't catch my breath in the thin air. Somebody tapped me on the shoulder. One of the aid station volunteers stood next to me with a pitcher of water. Can I fill your bottles, he asked. Without looking up, I said, sure. In my hip pack were two 16-ounce water bottles. Both had been full at the start of the race, and I had emptied them a quart of water in four miles. Where are you from, the volunteer asked as he filled them. San Francisco. Ah, that's a very nice place, he said, but you best be on your way. Why is that? I'd like to enjoy the view for a moment, I replied jokingly, as I was still hunched over looking straight down at the dirt. Well, there's only one, sh- one thing I'm sure about San Francisco, he went on. It's at sea level. Let me see your hands. I held out my right hand and squeezed my fingers. You best move on at this point. Uh, it, it would be best to move on and get up over that summit and start heading down the lower elevation, he advised. Once you get over the pass, the trail starts to descend quickly. You're not going to be able to catch your breath standing here no matter how long you stay. We're too high up in the sky. He was right. I took one last deep breath and I stood up straight. Thanks, partner, I said. Just doing my job, he replied. Now get out of here. I started moving forward again. The summit was only seven-tenths of a mile away. Unfortunately, though, it was nearly straight up. My watch said it was 6.09 a.m. The start of the day for a projected 24-hour pace at this point was 6.05 a.m., so I was right on target. But then again, I was a very short distance into a very long race. Today, I would rely on my watch like never before. I'd still run with my heart, but I'd need to use my head as well. I'd use my watch to make sure my pace was sensible. Even without referencing the time, though, it was clear that my tempo to the summit was arduously slow. At several points, I was on all fours, literally crawling up through the snow, as were other runners around me. It was extremely slippery and very steep, and there wasn't much to hold on to. My fingers were turning blue from the cold. Other runners had gloves on, but I hadn't thought to bring a pair. When I finally did claw my way to the summit and check my watch, the time was 7.01 a.m. It had taken me 52 minutes to go less than a mile. At that pace, the entire race would take four and one-half days to complete. I pushed another button on my watch and got a temperature read, 38 degrees Fahrenheit. The views from the summit, however, were enough to alleviate some of the brutality of the climb. It was breathtaking in every direction. The sun had now made its way into the sky, and beams of silverly, silvery light were dancing across Lake Tahoe in the distance. I was standing on the highest peak in the surrounding area. 
Below was a line of runners trekking up the narrow trail cut in the mountainside. Encircling me were other towering snow-covered peaks jabbing the sky for as far as the eye could see. Another runner was admiring the view. The man was rugged and chiseled and looked like a seasoned veteran. Where do we go from here, I inquired. He scanned the horizon to the west. See that peak over there? He pointed to a very distant mountain, maybe 20 miles away. Yeah, I see it. Okay, well, once we get there, the finish is 75 miles past that point. He was trying to be encouraging, I think, but the enormity of what we were doing gripped me. We had covered about five miles. The peak he was pointing to was about 25 miles away, or 20 miles away. Another 75 miles beyond that would make 100. The math was logical, yet seeing it all laid out in front of me for the first time was overwhelming. Just making it to that first distant peak looked daunting. It was barely visible on the horizon. There would be untold battles waged along the trail just to reach that peak 20 miles away. And from there, the finish is about 75 miles. It seemed unfathomable. I thanked him for the perspective and pressed on. My approach to running 100 miles would be a little different than from running a 10K. I'd simply put one foot in front of the other and not stop until I crossed the finish line. Hopefully. Emigrant passed to Robinson Flat, miles 4.7 to 30.2. Running downhill felt good, much easier than the climb up. The challenge now became not slipping in the uneven snow. Backcountry snow on west-facing ridges doesn't melt uniformly. Little pockets of menacing sun cups form with narrow pinnacles and foot-swallowing troughs. The best method for traversing a field of sun cups is to use an accelerated tiptoe-style run to minimize contact with the pitted surface. Still, even with this adaptive running technique, it was hard to avoid falling and sliding downhill. I watched as some runner slid a good 20 feet down the mountainside. I fell several times myself. The second big challenge was wet socks. That's not as insignificant as it may sound. Other runners wore gaiters over their shoes to keep the snow out, but I hadn't thought of that. Snow seeped in, melted, and soaked my socks. By the time I reached the Lion Ridge Aid Station, 16 minutes or 16 miles from the start, the damp, softened skin of my feet was already starting to blister. Blisters can become so painful that they force an athlete out of the race. A scant 16 miles into it, my mind was dwelling on the letters DNF. Did not finish. More than a third of the field would be less listed as DNF tomorrow. I did not want to be one of them because of destroyed feet. But there was little I could do about it until I reached the Robinson Flat Medical Checkpoint at mile 30, which was the first access point for support crew and where my parents would have fresh socks waiting. It was a long slog to get there. Most of the trail was still above 7,000 feet, and where the snow ended, water and mud took over. There were switchbacks that led to more switchbacks and ended in abrupt uphills or downhills, and the trail was littered with natural debris. The snowmelt had dragged rocks, trees, roots, and big chunks of earth across the path. You had to do a lot of jumping over and climbing around. My poor wet feet got more and more tender. Going downhill hurt the worst, as my feet slid forward, mashing my toes against the fronts of my shoes. And then I came to the first of many river crossings. The water, cold and crisp, came up to above my knees. I splashed some on my face and neck. It actually felt good, even though it was still early in the morning and fairly cool out. Hours passed, miles were covered, and eventually the distance totaled 30 miles. Coming around the corner and into the Robinson Flat Aid Station is like discovering an oasis, once you're on a remote trail in the middle of the mountains. Then you pop around the random corner, and mystically, this little city of bustling commerce appears. There are a number of white tents set up for shelter and lots of fresh food and cold drinks. From a runner's perspective, after you've run 30 miles through the wilderness, Robinson Flat is a welcome sight. I was quickly ushered into the medical checkpoint. They put me onto a scale and informed me that I'd lost a pound so far. Here's what the rules state. Vital signs will be checked at various points along the trail. Weight loss will be one of the most important of these criteria to be evaluated. 
a loss of 3% of one's body weight indicates that significant dehydration has occurred. At 5% loss, a runner may be nearly exhausted and will be scrutinized closely by the medical staff. At 7% loss of body weight, it will be grounds for mandatory withdrawal from the run due to the high risk of heat exhaustion, hypothermia, and the increasing risk of dangerous impairment of body functions. With just one pound shed so far, I was fine. However, I'd covered less than a third of the race. It would be important to keep hydrated, nourished, and avoid losing critical body mass and risk dangerous impairment of body functions. Whatever that meant, it certainly didn't sound good. As I stepped off the scale and walked toward the medical area, people were clapping and patting me on the back. You look great. Way to go. Keep it up. There were a couple of runners seated in the medical area having their feet examined. I exchanged nods and took the farthest seat in the row. It was nothing more than a flimsy beach chair, but it felt like a plush leather sofa. How are the feet, a volunteer asked. I'm not sure, but they're pretty wet and they feel a little tender, especially between my toes. He knelt. Let's get the shoes off and have a look. He removed my right shoe and held it upside down to let the water stream out. My foot was white as a marshmallow and looked like it had been soaking for hours. There were huge fissures and crags along the entire length, but perhaps most disturbing was the acorn-sized blister between my big and second toes. Just then, my parents rushed over to me. Hello, son, Dad said. How's it going so far? So far, so good, though I caught a look of concern when he saw my swollen, disfigured foot. The volunteer, Jim, continued to expect my feet carefully top to bottom. I'm going to need to lance these blisters to relieve some of the pressure. It shouldn't take long, but it might sting. How are we going to stop the skin from pulling away, I asked. That's a good question. After I've lanced the blister, I'm going to stick the skin together and tape it. Are you sure this is the best way? Trust me on this one. I've done it a hundred times. Before I could really comprehend what he was going to do, he tore the wrapping from a small scalpel, took aim at the blister on my right foot. Instantly, there was a stream of serum running down my foot, and the pain hit me. I winced and groaned through grinding teeth. There were beads of sweat rolling off my upper lip. Jim lanced another blister in the same manner, and I felt lightheaded and nauseated. And then, amazingly, he pulled out a tube of crazy glue. He whipped off the red cap, inserted the tip of the tube in my blister, and then he produced a roll of duct tape. I was stunned. He was actually sealing my blisters with crazy glue and duct tape. It felt like having, I felt like a raft having a leak repaired. Still, I was better off than the runner who collapsed in a chair nearby and had promptly fallen unconscious. People scurried around him, trying to support his head and prevent him from tumbling to the ground. A volunteer had a stethoscope pressed to the man's chest. She called to Jim. Dr. Williams, you're going to be needed over here. He stood up. Okay, get those clean socks on and you're good to go. Nice to see you. Robinson's flat to devil's thumb. Miles 30.2 to 47.8. It was 11.44 a.m. when I officially checked out from the Robinson Flat station. The projected pace of 24-hour runner uh, exiting Robinson Flat was 11.30 a.m. Though I was becoming less concerned about maintaining a 24-hour finishing pace and more about just trying to hold it together. I was the 124th runner to leave the checkpoint. After Robinson Flat, the trail widened. There were even long stretches of graded fire road. Towering pine trees lined much of the trail, their bristles laying a soft blanket of mulch over the dirt for a cushion landing. As I ran, I found myself instinctively favoring either the left or right side of the trail, never running down the middle. At first, I thought this was because the bristle buildup was denser along the sides of the trail and the cushioning was advantageous. Then it dawned on me that it was getting hot. Swerving side to side was an intuitive attempt to stay in the shade of the big pines. My pace picked up on this more gentle terrain. However, running faster generated more body heat, and by the time I reached Deep Canyon Aid Station at 35.8 miles, I was drenched with sweat. I paused there only long enough to refill my water bottles and grab a handful of pretzels, wanting to get as far along the trail as I possibly could before the real heat kicked in. The only way out of Deep Canyon is to run up the other side. 
The uphill was savage, and the enveloping heat was becoming merciless. Every pore in my body now gushed sweat, and it was impossible to stay cool in the still, stifling air. At several points along the trail were some peculiar watermarks in the dirt, periodic squiggles of wetness 15 to 20 feet long, as though someone had been aspirating his water bottle, which made no sense in this heat, where the goal was to conserve water, not squirt it out on the trail. These puzzled me until I came up behind another runner and saw the source. Let's just say it was a time-saving strategy instead of just stopping to relieve themselves, as I had done at least a half dozen times or so. Others were just doing it on the run. They looked ridiculous, but I had to concede. I had probably lost five minutes so far, pushing to do it the old-fashioned way. So I adopted the technique and found out that peeing on the run takes practice. It's not something they taught us in the Boy Scouts. You can't look down at what you're doing or you risk running off a cliff. You have to keep your gaze on the trail and aim by instinct. I had a number of false starves, but I eventually got the hang of it, so to speak. The sun beat down ruthlessly upon the trail as I progressed, heating the dirt and making every footstep uncomfortable. At the Dusty Corners aid station, mile 40, I showed the first disturbing sign of mild dehydration. My speech was slurred when I spoke to the volunteer who was sponging me down. He guided me to the nearby food table where I promptly gobbled down every salty piece of food in sight, chips, pretzels, and peanuts. My stomach full, I felt slightly more coherent. When I thanked him, my speech had come back, a minor victory in a major war. Departing dusty corners, a bit shaken but still determined, I started singing. There's a little black spot on the sun today, I will always be the king of pain. Odd that these lyrics popped to mind. The trail turned into a gradual downslope, but now there was a little shade to hide in. On the horizon, a pronounced layer of haze draped down onto the valleys, hugging the topography as far as the eye could see. A balmy summer day in the Sierra foothills was in progress. I felt pretty good mentally and physically when I pulled into the last chance checkpoint, mile 43.3, a half hour later. I had broken through a mental wall after dusty corners and was now in an up zone. It was surprising to find that I was the only runner at the last chance checkpoint. There were at least 100 runners somewhere in front of me and probably twice that number behind me over the stretch of 43 miles, though we had become really spread out along the trail. I grabbed a handful of peanuts as one of the volunteers filled my water bottles. He was a young kid, probably no older than 17. His name was Nate. At least that's what his tattoo said. How you doing, I asked. Okay, it's pretty warm, he said, putting the cap back on my bottle. You better load up on water. There ain't much between here and Devil's Thumb. Devil's Thumb was the crest on the other side of the canyon I was about to traverse five miles away. Any reports on what it's like down there? It's nasty, real hot, and not much air movement. Want to soak your shirt before leaving? I took off my shirt and tossed it in the water bucket. You look pretty good, he said. Some of the people coming through here are trashed. No way they're going to make it to Auburn. I nodded, fully aware that soon enough I could be just as bad off. Good luck, man, he said, and I headed back out onto the long and dusty trail. The plunge into Deadwood Canyon was horrendously steep with frequent curves and sharp corners to contend with, and it was roasting hot, even going downhill. The abrupt descent was followed inevitably, inevitably by another uphill climb, an agonizing hour-long struggle in the stifling heat. Rounding a particularly steep corner, I caught up with a runner who was obviously in serious trouble. Hunched over, barely shuffling his feet in the dust, his side covered in dirt, clearly he had fallen. I pulled up beside him. How's it going? He didn't have the strength to raise his head. He just sort of turned his chin to make contact with one eye. There was a pale white froth around his mouth, and when he first tried to speak, the words were nearly inaudible. I felt better, he croaked. We shuffled along together for a minute or so in the suffocating heat. Listen, I said finally, I'm going to push on to the aid station. Do you want me to send someone back for you? After a long pause, he mumbled, for me? No, don't send anybody back for me. Let them save their efforts for someone who really needs help. A wild grin spread across his face. 
The guy was tough as nails. He knew he didn't have a chance to make it another 53 miles. Still, his spirit wasn't broken. He'd probably keep going until they carried him out on a gurney. Devil's Thumb to Forest Hill, miles 47.8 to 62. It was 101 degrees when I reached the Devil's Thumb checkpoint. There was hardly a breath of air, and the heat radiated from the red clay soil in lazy, undulating ripples. Motionless runners lay strewn about the place like a scene from an old war movie, one in which the enemy was winning. A volunteer waved me over to a scale. I'd now lost nearly three pounds, about 2% of my body weight. Other runners had lost more and were trying to rehydrate. Maintaining proper hydration in such extreme conditions is tricky. I washed down a handful of pretzels with some Cytomax, an electrolyte replacement and lactic acid buffering solution popular with endurance athletes. Next to the pretzel sat a bowl of chopped potatoes, a dish of water, and a tub of salt. The idea was to dip the potato in the water and then the salt. It tasted nasty, but it was an effective way to stomach a large quantity of sodium. The next checkpoint beyond Devil's Thumb would be Michigan Bluff at mile 55.7. Unfortunately, between the two points was a 2,600-foot drop followed by a merciless 2,000-foot climb. Departing Devil's Thumb at 3.31 p.m., I was just now one minute behind my dream pace of a sub-24-hour finish. Still, after 10 hours of continuous running, I hadn't yet even reached the halfway point. There was plenty of trail left to either make or break me. It made little sense to be preoccupied with my time when there were no assurances that I'd ever reach the finish line. The descent from Devil's Thumb was so steep at points that I had to turn sideways to step downward, my shoes quickly filled with dirt and gravel, adding to the miserable soreness of my feet. Somewhere along this descent, I passed the halfway point in the race. The milestone went unnoticed. It had been said of the Western States Endurance Run that you run the first 50 miles with your legs and the last 50 miles with your mind. My mental toughness would now be tested like never before. El Dorado Creek at mile 52.9 marks the bottom of the gorge. The climb from El Dorado Creek up to Michigan Bluff was the harshest yet. At times I was crawling on the rocks on all fours, drenched in sweat, my legs so heavy and burdensome that I could barely hear the clear natural de- I could barely clear the natural debris that littered the trail. Periodically I would stumble on a rock or a branch. The hill just kept going on and on and on, and the climb took an hour and a half. Finally, I could hear the distant voices of the pit crew at Michigan Bluff. As I came around one final twist in the trail, the checkpoint emerged through the brush. The last few steps took all my remaining energy. People were whirling around me, asking questions and offering kudos, but it all sounded like gibberish. My head was spinning, the words not registering as they should. It took tremendous effort just to remain standing. Everything appeared fuzzy and gyrating, and it felt as though I were chewing on a mouthful of lemon peels. A volunteer poured ice over my head. The frigid liquid shocked me, and I shivered spastically, unable to control my twitching muscles. Eventually, I was able to regain my senses, and they brought me over to the scales. I was down over four pounds, probably even more since my soaked clothes added some weight to the reading, and this wasn't good. It took me a while to regroup at Michigan Bluff. I was brought food and cold water, which helped, but I declined to take the seat that was offered, fearing I wouldn't get back up. The food allowed me to regain some of my strength, and the camaraderie of so many supportive volunteers was a powerful tonic. When I checked out of the aid station, the crowd cheered, whistled, and clapped. It was an uplifting send-off. Within 15 minutes of departing the checkpoint, however, I found myself alone again on the trail. It was just after 5.20 p.m., and the next checkpoint at at Forest Forest Hill was six short but tough miles away. Just one 10K, I thought to myself. When I reach Forest Hill, I've covered 62 miles. From that point, all I would have left is a marathon and two back-to-back 10Ks. When exhaustion sets in, the mind often rationalizes the irrational. The trail began a twisting descent into Volcano Canyon, another steep downhill with a tight cornering and tricky footing. It required heightened attention to detail to prevent stumbling. 
Every step needed to be executed with precision and forethought. After descending a good thousand feet in two miles, I reached the pit of Volcano Canyon. It was utterly stifling down there, the hot air as thick as stew. The water in my bottles was warm and tasted like plastic. As much as I needed water, it was difficult to stomach more than a sip or two of the now foul liquid. Water leaked from my bottle, sizzling when it hit the ground and forming a little sauna-like puff of steam. From the dry riverbed, it was an agonizing four-mile climb to the next checkpoint at Forest Hill. Somewhere along the climb, maybe when the clump of dirt encrusted sweat entered my eye, it grimly occurred to me again that I might not be able to complete the event. DNF kept flashing in my mind, did not finish. If I allowed my spirit to weaken, I was sunk. A positive outlook was my greatest asset at this point. Despite being in the best shape of my life, no amount of brawn could carry me over 40, another 40 miles. The real battle was inside my head. Covering the last bit of distance in the forest hill, I found myself in a defensive survival-like mode, stressing about my cramping thighs and dehydration, worrying about what the trail might throw at me next. The elements were beating me into submission. How was I possibly going to hold it together for the last 38 miles? Fear, I thought to myself. Just another four-letter word, but now as great an adversary as any mountain left before me. From here on in, the battle would be within. And he finished that race uh, in less than 24 hours, and the big prize that you get for finishing the Western States in less than 24 is a belt buckle. So, anyway, great book.